0: Welcome to this special episode of Wind Your Neck In. And as always, in pursuit of some really top, in depth content on high performance, we look at the influence of what goes into your body and how it affects your performance. We're all about high performance on this podcast. We're all about finding out what makes the small differences. And um, this week we're very lucky to welcome Professor Graham Close to the show. Graham is a human physiology at Liverpool John Moore's University, and the only person in the UK credited with the UK SCA. B-A-S-A-E-S and the S-E-N. Small r. Now, you're going to have to correct me how to say that last one, um, Graham. How, wh- these accredited uh, qualifications, a simple rugby player like me, when I'm reading those, what, what do they mean?
1: Yeah, I, I started collecting from for a bit of fun, really. Uh, <laughs> so thanks for having me on uh, this evening. Yes, yeah, so the UK SCA is the United Kingdom Strength and Conditioning Association. I guess what this says is that, I couldn't make my mind up what I wanted to be, so I started <laughs> off as wanting to be a strength and conditioning coach, and that's for UK SCA. Yeah. The next set of letters, which is BASES, is the British Association of Sport and Exercise Scientists, and that's when I was moving more to be a, a sports scientist and a strength and conditioning coach. And then about a decade ago, nutrition really grabbed me. So SCN, small R, is a sport and exercise nutrition register which is the official register of sport nutritionists in the UK. Uh, and that's kind of where I have stuck. So I, I collected a lot of uh, letters, PhDs, professorships, and I've kind of stuck now on enjoying my life as a sport nutritionist.
0: Very good, very good. I've got no letters after mine yet, but I'm working on it hard. Um, Graham, just for the context, you're currently working as an advisory role um, with England Rugby as expert nutrition consultant um, you're currently the deputy chair of the Sports Exercise Nutrition Register. Um, you mean there's there's loads and loads of amazing work that you're doing um, in the field that you've now adopted as we've as we've covered. And we're hugely appreciative to have someone like you come on the podcast to kind of tip into an area of high performance that we haven't yet touched on. So um, attached to this episode, um, you obviously work very closely with Nutrition X, and um, you act as Nutrition X scientific advisor and we'll get into the ins and outs of the of the nutrition next later on because I know it's something that you do hugely enjoy but um I I'd just like to say a huge thank you for having you on I appreciate that no one enjoys an intro like that but I think it's really important to give the context and pedigree of what you have um in this field so first and foremost we just like to introduce uh, how's everything going in your world how busy are you and what are you up to
1: yeah, it's 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 actually beginning to get back to some degree of normality, if we can actually say that. Um yeah. from a university perspective, it's great to be back in the building, back in my laboratories. So running my experiments that I enjoy doing. We were in the labs today, muscle biopsies were being taken. Uh so it was great. And then obviously the students are back in. So it's great to be teaching my master's students again. And then uh I've just, you know, a couple of weeks ago, I think it was now, I was in camp with England rugby for the mini camp and it's great to be in that again and obviously we're preparing for the, the the internationals that are coming up and then the other consultancy work I do is with the European Tour Golf so I'm just back from Scotland where we had the the Dunhill links um so yeah life's getting back to normal and as busy as what it what it has ever been really so yeah it's great thanks
0: brilliant that's great to hear I think like the um the really interesting thing about what you do is it's so relatable to so many fields but I mean whenever you look at uh, at the the term high performance I mean in a rough kind of over sense in your perspective how important is the world of performance nutrition
1: Yeah well I got into nutrition basically because when I was a strength and conditioning coach and sports scientist I realised when I had the other set of initials, um, <laughs> I realised that actually everything I was doing was paling into insignificance because the players weren't eating correctly. Mm. So we can do whatever training we want in the world, but if you don't fuel it properly, you're wasting your time. So if, if we actually think about, it, even just protein, for an example, one example, you know, if you think about your muscle, you're constantly turning over muscle tissue so much so that every 50 to 100 days you've got none of that original muscle left it's all turned over it's all been regenerated and where does it come from well it comes from the amino acids that we eat so you can do loads of training lifting the gym like you couldn't possibly lift any harder train the house stone but if you don't get the food right you've almost wasted your time so that's why I got into this field and that's just protein for example you know we know with carbohydrates that it can be the difference between being able to exercise for 10 minutes or an hour and there's nothing else I don't think in this field of high performance that we work in that can have such a profound effect in such a short period of time which is why I became passionate about this field and let all my strength and conditioning and all that go and I've spent the last 20 years researching this topic.
0: Absolutely. I think it's so important. And like, obviously, uh, Graham, having chatted to you briefly before, like you understand I work in a world of elite, uh, elite performance. Um, and I think you, you've probably, you know, looked after and produced this next generation of nutrition, performance nutritionists who are now looking after me, which is amazing. But I think, um, people often forget this kind of food first terminology. Okay. And I think, um, like you've said, th- if, if if you don't have the fundamentals in place in terms of what's actually going on in your body before we get to the supplementation of your diet and the supplements that nutrition acts uh, uh, do, there is no point in looking any further. So if if I was uh, Nile Anit and I was 18, um, which I once was a long time ago, I think what are some of the key keystone habits that you would look to implement for uh, in educating a young professional athlete in any sport, really?
1: Yeah, well, you know, you've used the key terminology there in, in a food-first approach, and it's something that any credible sport nutritionist you'll hear advocate. And what we mean by that is, there is no point supplementing a diet that is built on bad foundations. Yeah, you know, we're literally icing a cake that hasn't even been baked. So what what we do is we spend a lot of time trying to get the fundamentals in place. So uh, uh, John Moore's we talk a lot about the three T's of nutrition and these are the total, the timing and the type. So making sure that we're eating the right types of food. So I want to make sure my players understand what carbohydrate based foods are and why they're important. You know, when we talk about these as being the high energy foods, what protein based foods are and why they're important about the micronutrients and the fruits and the vegetables, the hydration, but at all time thinking about the three T's, So the total amount of it, the timing and the type. So we build a foundation like that. And hopefully the athletes that I have spent time working with are then able to to build the diets themselves. You know, what I don't want to do is be too prescriptive. Give somebody, that's your meal plan, eat that. But they've no idea why. So if training changes or if something isn't available, they don't know how to change it themselves. So I get really proud when I work with, with um, with some of the England rugby lads that I've worked with, where they're talking my terminology and they are understanding that on game day minus one, that's so our big carbohydrate day, and I see the plate full of carbohydrates. But then on a, on another day, it might be full of uh, fruits and vegetables. Mm. So giving them the
0: tools that they need to make the decisions themselves, I think is is crucial. Yeah, it's the education, isn't it? Because anyone can follow this kind of regimented meal plan that says, "Okay, today you're going to eat thirty grams of carbohydrates and blah blah blah." And I think the the real skill and the sweet spot, and in, in having spoken to people who know you and people who work with you, is that your education in terms of formulating that for themselves is is, is high quality. And the the carbohydrates is an interesting one because you know as well as I do, in the misinformed world that we live. Um, there is a stigma around carbohydrates people have kind of tended to create this misconception around how useful it is particularly in high performance now obviously relative to high performance but um like you were just you actually mentioned something just before we came on around how important and how useful carbohydrates are do you want to cover cover any of that now
1: yeah absolutely And, and you're right but there's been a uh, a change in, in nutrition over the last probably five or six years, where for some reason carbohydrates have been demonized uh, and even developed into what I would say some athletes becoming carbophobic, dare mm. I say it. Uh, and this comes from where a little bit of knowledge can be dangerous. Um, and, and what we've got to remember is that to fuel performance like in a rugby game, we're only going to fuel that on carbohydrates we're not going to be able to fuel that on fats. It'd be great if we could, because as we know, you can store an unlimited amount of fat where we the body can only store enough carbohydrate for about 60 to 90 minutes worth of exercise. So that's why in theory, if you could get people using fats more efficiently, you could basically fuel exercise all day. Mm. Um, Unfortunately, we know that high intensity exercise needs carbohydrate. What we also know about as a society, maybe not so much in pro sport, but maybe a little bit, is we maybe overeat carbohydrates these days.
2: Mm.
1: And They're tasty. Tasty, exactly, and you know, some of the refined sugars and things like that <laughs> that people overeat. And before you know it, we've got, we've got an obesity crisis. So what I passionately believe in is this concept that we've called at John Moore's fuel for the work required. Yes. And when we talk about fuel, I mean carbohydrate. So I try and educate the players to think about what work is required. So if if Tuesday is a really hard training day, well, then we're we're banging in the porridges and the rice at dinner and fruit in between. But if if said Wednesday or Thursday is a light training day, well, then we might lower our carbohydrate intake on that day.
2: Hmm.
1: And the way I try and do it now is I simplify everything down to a traffic light system So if if you come into some of the teams where I work, you might see next to the buffet a red, amber, green like traffic light. And for a red meal, I want them eating mainly lean meats and vegetables. An amber meal, a standard portion of carbohydrate. And a green meal, fill your boots. Hmm. So they get to it and they'll know that game day minus one, all they're going to see is greens. But on another day, that might be a light training day, they might see some reds and ambers. So we try and manipulate our carbohydrate intake dependent on the work required. Uh, and that's how I think we get the best of all situations.
0: Yeah. I think it's fascinating to get some of that insight. And I know um we kind of covered on some of that educational stuff that you do. I mean, when you get these young guys um, for the first time, and they're probably drinking and eating really whatever they feel like they have, or maybe potentially they're being guided by their parents, how important, or what sort of? Uh, I'm talking more based towards that kind of like Everton Academy study that you did, and I want mm-hmm. you to delve into the pit stop that you created and why that was so important. But when you get access to younger kids, like in academies, um, how important is it that ed- the parents are educated because they're actually influencing largely what these kids are going to eat at certain times?
1: Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned Everton. Though you know, I was really proud of the work that we did at Everton, and. And I know that Marcus Hannon, a former school friend of yours, uh, yeah. was one of the ones who actually led a lot of that with the academy. And, you know, Marcus is now the first team nutritionist at Aston Villa, where I know work. So I've moved from yeah. Everton to Aston Villa to do some consultancy there. And what was brilliant at Everton was how much they tried to engage the parents. You know, they even had, like, staff who were specific parent liaison officers. They created a, a parent education website. Um, I really did try to drive a nutrition education from when the kids are first in that building on that food first education approach. And, and we did some research in our time at Everton, which highlighted the, the huge amount of energy that these youth uh, footballers were expending. So from a day at school, coming to training, doing all the training, a, a huge amount of calories. So I think top of my head, somewhere nearly 4,000 Wow. which will be as much as some England rugby players on some days. Mm. So that's why myself and Marcus got our heads together. And we came up with this idea that we called pit stop and then grab and grow. So the idea would be as soon as the uh, kids got to the training ground, we had a pit stop. So that'd be like a high calorie fruit smoothie where we had mixed berries, yogurts, um, um, different nut butters, for example, And we had a real high calorie smoothie or we had a chocolate milk and we had a homemade granola bar. So an easy way to give them nearly a thousand calories. And then at the end of the day, as we're going home, they could get a grab and grow. So not a grab and go, a grab and grow. Mm. So this would be like a, a chicken and avocado wrap or some fruit, yogurt, granola pots. So just really making sure that we were getting enough energy into them because the biggest mistake I've seen on youth athletes is actually not feeding enough, you know, maybe too much of a concern about looking like a men's health cover model at 14 and 15, but actually (laughs) what we want is to fuel the the growth and fuel the demands of training and allow all that development to take place.
0: Yeah. And that's a fascinating conversation that you, that we open up, you know, the, the, in the world of, of high performance, not everyone, unfortunately, when you're speaking to a front rower, can look like Cristiano Ronaldo when he takes his top off and swinging it round at Old Trafford. Okay, so we have to acknowledge that there is like um, different body types for different jobs. Is that is that a fair term that we would use specific to rugby?
1: Without any question, and, and it's a question that I'm asked a lot about, what is the ideal body shape or the ideal body fat for different positional groups? And there's simply no answer. You know, Mm. you only need to look, you know, within the sport of rugby where you've got, you know, you pick a winger's position, for example, and you can go for some massive, massive giants of men, big powerhouse wingers who are absolutely world-class. And then you go all the way through to a, you know, a lightning fast leaner. And exactly the same when you, you know, look at hookers, you know, you can go from some people who, you know maybe are carrying a little bit of body fat to some people but are genuinely world-class yeah people you would put on the front of men's health magazine um uh, you know they all bring different things to the party and I think that's why I love rugby as much as any sport because you know there's a place for everybody shape and size isn't there and you can still you know be world-class within your genetic framework and and you can maximize it, and I think that's why the sport fascinates me.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think um, you know there is a there's a job for everyone. There's a job. There's a job for the chubby lads. There's a job for the fast guys. There's a job for the taller guys. And I think that what that also and um, pr- pr- kind of so in some way um, creates for you is you know how do we generalize what we're asking these guys to do, and that's where the education comes. So when we follow the tangent of the education, you're educating these guys, but you're also educating Future nutri- performance nutritionists, um, that role with uh, that role with the Liverpool John Moores Uni. I know it's something that you're you're passionate about because you're um, helping mould and create th- these, these, this next generation. So why is that role? Why does it sit of such importance to you?
1: Yeah, for for a variety of reasons. The first one is, you know, as a professor and a research scientist, there's probably nothing better than finding the answers to questions that nobody knows. So about seven or eight years ago now, we did the first ever muscle biopsy study in professional rugby. So I managed to convince a witness Vikings to let me take muscle biopsies out of them before and after the game in a a competitive fixture, so a a league fixture. And um, so we were the first to work out what a rugby player's carbohydrate demands were, which was an amazing piece of research a similar study we got blood samples before half time and after a warrington wolves fixture to look at some inflammatory markers to see what's going on uh, and, and at the moment you know so many rugby players are asking me about cbd yes so i've yes. got cbd growing on muscle cells in in my lab at the moment to try and really understand what's going on so, so from that perspective the research is amazing but about 8 years ago i pitched an idea to my boss at john Moser why don't we write a master's degree in sport nutrition? And I had this vision that one day most sport nutritionists would have come from this John Moore's master's degree. And the boss allowed me to write it and we've been running it now for seven or eight years. And we only need now to look at the footprint that this has now in not only Prem Rugby, but Prem Football, you know, the likes of James Mohan at at Bristol and, you know, you look through all the different teams—Andy Casper at Sale Sharks—and I could just go on and on. You know, and in Premier League football, Marcus at Aston Villa.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Uh, but there's loads of these. You know, we, we had one last week. Moved the Nile, moved to Scarlets, and I look around the elite teams now, and they've now got highly qualified, passionate, skillful individuals. Many of which have come from John Moore's delivering nutrition to these young athletes. And I'd say, you you know, of all the things I've done in my life, that's one of the things I'm most proud of, of creating that, you know, not on my own, obviously, all the staff at John Moore's are great, but creating that body of qualified, um, passionate nutritionists.
0: Yeah, it sounds like... uh like a really important thing to you personally and I can totally see why when you explain it with that kind of passion and I think when you look at some of the progressions you see do you, like every year do this does a new kind of group of people challenge how you see it like is the, is the learning sometimes a two-way street because um their perceptions different or their 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 way of thinking's different yeah
1: and they keep you on your toes as well and you know the challenges and the questions that come and one thing I should probably mention and um, I, I'm almost ashamed of himself for not saying it in at the last bank but you know people like Anne-Marie Mulholland who yeah. Ulster Rugby and now moved to Ireland Rugby um, we, we've got Amy O'Keefe at Manchester United ladies team and you know it's not just the lads who've gone on some of the girls have gone on to do incredible jobs in what can be sometimes seen as a male dominated sport. So of course, um, yeah, it, it's been great. And and yes, the students challenge me and, you know, put me on the spot, and basically get us to answer questions at t- times we'd not thought of. Mm. Uh, and we've got a good international group as well who come over and, you know, they bring ideas that I've not thought of as well. So yeah, but not, it's not just for research, it keeps me sharp.
0: It, it's working with these sharp young minds as well. Absolutely. It's, I mean, it sounds like an environment where there's, I mean, in, own, in its own way, a high-performing a high environment where there's loads of challenge and loads of growth for learning, which is, sounds amazing. And I think you touched on that research, and I thought like, you know, if, if I had like a little glass ball that could give us an answer to anything within your field, what is the question that you, you're most desperate to know?
1: Yeah, I think the more that we study nutrition, the more we realise that one size fits nobody. Mm. And, and and ultimately, we're, we're working with individuals. And that's not just from um, an appetite, for example, but the way that the body will physiologically respond to different stimulus, different training, different nutrition. So I think getting to understand the individual is going to be the, the next big thing. And we're going to be prescribing diets based on, on the individual's needs. Now I know that there are some companies at the moment doing genetic testing and using that to prescribe diets. And I think one day we will be doing that wow. at the moment. I don't think we know enough yet. And we're not able to measure enough genes um, to really do that. Even though I know that technology is being pushed out there at the moment. But I think one day that is where we will go. So we'll have specific diet plans and even specific training plans. You know, you'll need to look at some of the resistance training literature where you can give people the exact same diet and the exact same um, training. And then based on the genetic makeup, some people will put on 10 kilos of muscle. Some will put on zero yeah. The exact same training and the it's exact crazy. same diet. And we've all seen it within the rugby environments, aren't we? There's some lads who you know all I need to look in a gym and they blow up. And <laughs> others, unfortunately, train the house down and they still stick thin.
0: I think that I think I fit in that second category, unfortunately. <laughs> yeah,
1: and, and and I think um, you know, with perhaps naively in the past, um, treated everyone the same, and that's yeah. on training and diet. And I think we're getting a lot better now at understanding the individual in front of us and tailoring the training, the recovery, the nutrition to their individual needs.
0: So I think that's going to be the biggest growth in the future. So like, if we follow on with this, because this is so interesting, Like, so within your job, I mean, obviously loads and loads of clubs that you work with, but that English rugby one, like how important is it for you to know the people, like actually really know them? So you can't just come in and implement stuff if you don't know the people uh, like on a real personal level, do you know how they work or what their concerns are or what they're worried about or what they need, um, you know, how they need to feel. So some of those conversations that you have with those people before you start prescribing plans around their performance nutrition must be really important.
1: Yeah, and the more time you can spend with the individuals, the better. You know, even just understanding the home life and what are the challenges to getting their nutrition in place, what have they tried in the past, what they're trying to achieve. Um, Yeah, without a shadow of a doubt, but I think some of the best um, interventions I've ever put together, when I've actually been sat at the dining table with the players having a chat, and before you know it, it's just grown organically into a conversation about why they're eating that at that particular time um and i think the more that you can be in that environment when i first started in this discipline my, my first gig ever uh my first professional one was with monster rugby which was wow. an unbelievable opportunity i'd worked at a few rugby league clubs and things like that but, but this was what i would say my first serious one and, and that was at a time when um i walked in 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 day one and stood in front of miss paul o'connell ron o'gara peter stringer dave wallace Um, Jerry Flannery, you know, you can just go on and on. What a team that was. That was in 2008. Uh, Talk about feeling intimidated. It's not often I felt (laughs) starstruck, but maybe I did (laughs) at that point. The point of that story, but that was kind of, it started a day a month consultancy, then it moved to more like two or three days a month. And whilst I think we did some good stuff on that model, it quickly became apparent to me that we needed somebody full time. And that's where I think you get the best out of things. So I moved Warren Bradley, who wasn't one of my students at the time, over to Ireland, and he was full-time. And then I spent a few years mentoring Warren. And then Warren's gone on to be a successful nutritionist himself. And um, But, yeah, it, it became really apparent that we needed that day-to-day contact. And, and, and I think the teams that have embraced a full-time nutritionist Rather than bringing somebody in a day or two ad hoc, of a ones that are maximising performance,
0: I'm so glad you've kind of diverted that way on uh, uh, if through your thought process because I this is exactly what I'd like to get into next. Okay, so the implementation of performance nutritionists has changed has changed over the years, right? And. Mm. There is a stigma, right, that uh, which I've been part of. Which I've been part of, if I'm totally honest, is that a performance nutritionist will come in and your perception of what that person's role is is that they're only in there to test your body fat. Yeah, and That's actually, uh, and and actually, I b- I do believe that the stigma is changing. I believe that there's actually um, really good environments believe that they're actually there for for growth because if you look at um, how the contact time of what they should have relevant to how important what they're still, what they're actually covering is, is it's, it's, it's mind boggling how they've at times only been in once a week. So we kind of what three or four meals a day at at the club when we're training. So that's three or four opportunities for a performance nutritionist to have an input on what I'm on. What um, I just put it on me. I'm putting in my body. I do a gym session once a day. Um, sometimes twice a day if I need to get a bit bigger. And I've got probably four or five strength and conditioning coaches writing these plans. So the actual accessibility of how these performance nutritionists are put into professional environments, I'm sure you've seen a big change. I hope that you've seen a big change.
1: Yeah, without doubt. So when we moved into Everton, um, at that point, Lloyd Parker was our first team nutritionist full-time, Marcus Academy full-time, and I came in as as the consultant to, at the time to oversee that service. Uh, and we got our heads together about how can we maximise what you just discussed though. So we came up with the, the, the mantra, EFC, Everton Football Club. The food mantra was every feed counts. Mm. And the idea of that is, that, as you just said, five meals a day, 35 meals a week was that? 140, uh, 1,800 meals a, a year. So you've got around about 1,800 opportunities to make yourself a better or worse athlete. So how many of them opportunities are we going to take? Because every feed counts. So on on the dining hall in Everton, we had that mantra, every feed counts. And that was our our little thing of how can we maximize each one of these? And then having Lloyd Ver full-time in the dining hall was able to just help and prompt and guide and periodize. And at the right time, we would put different foods in place. Uh, And that can only happen, I think, by having somebody within the... And you're exactly right. We've got to get that reputation gone from the nutritionist being the... Either the food police or the body fat checker. You know, (laughs) there's a a lot more than... uh, When I do the master's degree, week one, we teach them how to use skinfold calipers. That's done in a few days. The next... 51 weeks are about (laughs) studying the biochemistry
0: and how we can manipulate food to alter an athlete's biochemistry. Yeah, I I totally get it. I totally get it. And I think maybe maybe it's just like the chubby guy within me who sees a pair of calipers and a sports nutrition or performance nutritionist and starts to try and run the other way. But no, I think um the implementation of what the act like you said, opportunities um probably demands more contact time. And I do but I do believe in in what I've seen now that I'm a 30-year-old over my my kind of tenure as a player, it it is shifting and it is changing. I think when you touch on um environments let's get into maybe the difference in some of the environments that you've experienced so you've obviously worked across football rugby and many many other sports which hopefully you'll touch on like what are some of the real noticeable differences
1: yeah and it it varies within sports as well as between sports so it's hard to say that this environment is that and this one is different um, I would say the exception of that, and I've never worked in it, is my colleague who I share an office with, uh, Professor James Morton. He uh, he spent a lot of time in cycling, wow. and I've never known, you know, a lot of time working with Team Sky. Uh, and that's a sport where literally, if you run out of fuel, you don't you stop pedaling. You don't get up the mountain. So if, you know, if you talk about sports that value it at the very highest, you've probably got that at the very top, and. Maybe football at times, in some situation, can be a little bit lower down that pecking order.
2: Hmm.
1: I find that more and more rugby teams are valuing it, um, mainly I would say from a body composition perspective. But we know that with, you know, the game's getting fitter, faster, stronger, isn't it? And you know, trying to maximise that lean muscle mass. Um, but look, you know, don't get me wrong. But with any with any sports team that you work you've got them who are all over it absolutely fully committed to it right through to people who just leave me alone and let me eat what i want <laughs> so, yeah it's pretty hard to pigeonhole but yeah if you pick if you want me to pick any sport that values it more than other i would say it's like
0: uh, tour de france style cycling yeah. I mean, that, that uh, I I can see why, because actually the, the more, as much as what goes into your body, like the weight that you carry obviously has a huge influence on performance. And that's why obviously the, the performance yeah. nutrition is so important. Um, so like kind of to, to move to the, your role within nutrition actually touched on something there, um, earlier when, before we kind of came online, which I thought was really important. So we've kind of covered the food first concept of how important having a stable structured and well-educated diet is. And then from there it, within certain elements of, of elite performance, um, it is important to supplement your diet with some, some kind of secondary things that can, can improve performance. So within that role in nutrition X, you obviously have a big influence on what sort of supplementation they, they push out. Is that fair to say?
1: Yeah. So we, we talked at the very beginning about food first, um, but what we're not what we're not saying is food only, yeah. Because there are a handful, and it literally is a handful, of supplements where the evidence is almost overwhelming that it can help to improve performance. Uh, and, and a few years ago, even the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, who've been very cautious in their position stands on supplements, uh, wrote uh, a new position stand where they acknowledged that things like creatine, beta-alanine, for example, taken as a supplement at the right time, and it wouldn't be possible to get the right amounts in food, um, have proven evidence in, in enhancing performance. So a few years ago, I got to know the brand, Nutrition X, uh, basically from a time at Munster Rugby it was. They were sponsoring yeah. Munster Rugby at the time, and they allowed me to design a range purely for the Munster rugby team. And, and to cut a long story short, that range now is the only range that the brand now sells. Um, and it's developed a little bit over the, the last few years. But, the, you know, the cool thing about them as a brand is that we all agree, you know, from me, my science to the owner, James, that look fat burners are the biggest selling supplement in the world. If you want to make money as a brand, sell a fat burner. Hmm. But Nutrition X don't have one because no fat burners work. You know, if fat burners worked, we would have an obesity epidemic in the world. You yeah. take a little pill and, and do it. So you if you if you look at the brand, the only products we have are the ones where there really is proven efficacy of, of benefit. Uh, and the other thing that the brand did, which was my condition of working with them, is that they committed to every single product being batch tested with informed sport because we know that you know the the research would suggest that around about one in ten supplements that you would buy willy nilly over the internet can contain enough prohibited substances to fail an anti-doping test so yeah it's been a pleasure working with them over years because they've given me free reign on, on what i can what what i design um along with professor don mclaren who was my Uh, PhD supervisor so McLaren's involved as well with branders Um, so the two of us have been the ones who put the range together and there's absolutely no pressure to put nonsense out there it's just proven products
0: Yeah. So obviously, there's a real uh, there's a degree of quality based on your academics uh, and experience, as opposed to fads, because they're like you've covered some of the stuff around, um, you know, (laughs) fat burners and stuff like that. Is it it, it is scary at times to think that people are willing to sell really anything to 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 market some of these things though, isn't it, without actually having to do the hard work?
1: Oh, correct. And, And you know. The profit margins in some things are absolutely huge. If you've got more no morals and you want to sell things, yeah. Um, Like I said, like some of these uh, fat burners are, for example. So, yeah, it's it's important that if anyone is going to consider, you know, supplementing a diet. As we said, we get the diet right first, and then we get qualified advice from an individual who can help to navigate through uh this world uh, and try and separate the fact from fiction and trust me (laughs) there's a whole lot of fiction in this world
0: absolutely so i mean in relation to nutrition x specifically um we we're delighted on the podcast to be doing a a giveaway bundle uh, in the next couple of days um within that are going to be some of the high quality uh supplements that 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 you yourself have have passed off or or um, allowed to be sold because of the quality and and for, more importantly, um, in in tandem with the quality, that the reasons that you would take them. So, if I was sitting here as a, again eighteen year old Nile, what are some of the things that I could look to uh, to implement quite easily um, as a supplement to my good food first diet?
1: Well, I think given where you're living at the moment and. The time of the year that we're moving into, I think the first thing that we would say is vitamin D. So yeah. we know that vitamin D you get from the sunlight. Um, and, and even the, the food standards agency would recommend in the winter months it's important to supplement our diet with vitamin D because you're not going to get it from food. You know, if, if vitamin D was uh discovered today, you wouldn't even call it a vitamin because it, its main way into the body isn't via food you know it should actually probably be sued under the trade description act because <laughs> there's not much about it that's a vitamin it's actually a, a c-core steroid or a pro hormone so it it causes the production of other hormones and it has steroid like effects in the body and we can't get it without sunlight so i think a, a, a good quality vitamin d would be important um and then on top of that well i'd need to speak to you I'll
0: be honest. I'll be honest. I was kind of hoping you would go on the tangent to vitamin D. And I thought looking at me as this kind of pale Irish ghost, you might head out that line. So I'm glad you have, um, whilst we're on the vitamin D. Okay. So Mr. Vitamin D, you have the title, um, which I'm sure you're, you're delighted about, um, it's an area you've done extensive research into now you, know, you describe some of the kind of influences uh, some of the some of the, your thought process around the vitamin D stuff so how relevant I actually have a couple of questions just out of curiosity when I was doing the research I saw how prevalent you are in that field like how 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 do you assess the person's needed dose for vitamin D relevant to potentially skin, you know, skin color, like someone like me who yeah. is pale and Northern Irish and doesn't get the sun very often in Belfast or whatever. Is that going to be something different to someone who maybe does have sworthier skin or, um, you know, maybe it takes the sunlight better?
1: You've either been doing some really good research or you've been tapped up with a really good question by somebody. So that, uh, that's an absolute... I was going to say, as we'd say in Wigan, that's an absolute bobby-dazzler because <laughs> what we know is that the skin um, pigmentation will affect uh, the way that you generate vitamin D, and it might even affect how much you need. So we know that darker-skinned individuals, so like African-American athletes or um, you know people with that type of skin color, will not generate as much vitamin D from sunlight as me and you, paler-skinned mm. individuals. Um, and, 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 and that's just a fact because of the way that it act, acts as an actual sunblock uh, and you don't convert – you basically have pre-vitamin D in the skin that's converted to vitamin D and released, et cetera. But what we're also beginning to realise is that actually the darker-skinned individuals might not need as much as the paler ones, Mm -hmm. that they're adapted to not need the same amount, which would make sense if your body is stopping you making it. It would make sense that you're more effective at using what you have got. And I think we've made the mistake in the past of not understanding that well enough. So what I tend to do at the moment is where we can, we measure vitamin D. How do you do Uh, that? So we can measure it in a blood test. So you'd measure a compound called 25-OHD, 25-hydroxyvitamin D. Um, I don't think we measure it enough in sports. If we can measure it, then we can be a bit more prescriptive with our supplementation. And if you can't measure it, then the Food Standards Agency have set 4,000 international units as a safe upper limit. And I go tad more cautious and go 2,000 because it's popping up in a few things now because it's trendy. So I didn't want Nutrition X to have a 4,000 product. I wanted them to have a 2,000, which research in my lab has shown is plenty to correct a deficiency. It's nowhere near an amount that can cause a toxicity, and it gives a, a wiggle room in case vitamin D is popping up in a multivitamin or mm-hmm. something else that an athlete might be taking. So, so, yeah, that's my current stance on it. And as the research continues, and we're doing a lot of research in, in John Moore's on ethnicity and then what you would need, then maybe our thought process might change a bit.
0: Yeah, it's a fascinating area. I think one of the other, you know, no, I think the, I think the vitamin D is something that probably most of the people who listen to this, um, you know, in the in the realms that they do, probably aren't aware of how important it is from a high performance point of view. One of the um, supplements that people will be more fait with um within maybe the community rugby game or um other other fields is creatine and the creatine you've touched on and actually um I mean I I'm not going to pretend like I have the same level of information as you do on the creatine but it is proven to actually generate um some really positive outcomes I was wondering if you could touch on the creatine why it's important and why it's effective but also it needs to be managed pretty carefully.
1: Yeah, so so creatine is. There weren't many supplements being advocated when I was playing league back in '95, but creatine was one, mm. and I think that's why it's probably not given me attention, but it should be given because everybody's after the next best thing in life, aren't they? Yeah. Whenever there's something good, you want to okay, what's the next best thing? And I genuinely think when it comes to sports supplements, we've still got nothing better, mm. but it's just not trendy. And the other reason, but it's not trendy. Is actually creatine is creatine. You know, you might see loads of like different types of creatine. I remember when I was playing, there was a creatine serum that came on the market. It was about £100 for this bottle of creatine serum, which is all well and good, apart from it can't get into a serum. So there's nothing in the bottle. Basically, a bottle of nothing that
0: costs £100. But, and
1: the problem with creatine, and I, you know, The Nutrition X one, for example, it's like 14 quid for a big bag of it, and it'll last you half a season. Mm. So people always try and oversell it, and, you know, there's this type, there's alkalinized creatine, Mm. there's this that doesn't cause water. Creatine's creatine. Let's not beat around the bush. A basic bag of creatine is, is all that you need. And we know that there's a lot of research now that it can improve speed, size, strength then short, sharp bursts of activity, which are absolutely yeah. crucial for rugby performance. And what probably the only side effect of creatine is that you, you can sometimes put maybe a kilo of, of body mass on. And for a sport like rugby, there's not many people who don't actually want a, a kilo of body mass. Uh, maybe 20 years ago, we were worried about the long-term effects of it because it's metabolized, you know, excreted by the kidney and things like that. But we've now got 20, 30 years of research of people taking high amounts for a a very long time, and there's just no evidence that that, that these side effects, and then there's urban myths like it can cause muscle tears and things like that, and this is just all nonsense, you know, there's some excellent research by a great scientist in America, Eric Rawson, who's an loads of Mr. Creatine. If you call me Mr. Vitamin D, this is Mr. Creatine. (laughs) And and all their myths have been put to bed and it's it's probably one of the few that, like I said, that popped up in the IOC position stand that taken at the right time in the right doses will enhance athletic performance.
0: Yeah, excellent answer. Yeah, um uh, really really interesting, but I think it's really important that the perception of it's really accurate. So the next one, the last supplement I want to talk to you about before we move on to some of your um work with English rugby and, and stuff, um is pre-workout. What what's the stance on pre-workout? Is it a fad? I mean, I know a lot of them are fads, um but is there something really effective you can take beforehand versus how do you avoid some of those fads? So in my
1: opinion and experience and to the best of my knowledge at this moment in time wow here we go (laughs) there is one ingredient that can help you pre-workout and that's it
0: and that's caffeine i was just gonna say yeah that's
1: it that's it so if you look at any pre-workout they are pretty much on a caffeine base so most of them have somewhere between 100 and 250 milligrams of caffeine in Mm. we know that around about 100 milligrams um will be a minimum dose to have an effect, which is basically an espresso. Um, A double espresso will be about 200 milligrams. And if that's what you want to do as a pre-training workout product, then great, have a double espresso. Or find a pre-trainer that has got a couple of hundred milligrams of caffeine within it. What you see on the back of a lot of pre-trainers is a raft load of other ingredients and the vast majority of the to differentiate it from taking caffeine. You know, caffeine is is the key ingredient at that time. And you don't have to have a pre-trainer, as I say, you can have a a, a double espresso if you prefer Mm -hmm. to do it it that way. But I'm not convinced that there's any other ingredient that isn't prohibited by Wada that is an effective pre-workout. Now you know If you think that a lot of stimulants, which is what pre-workouts are, are banned by WADA. The second WADA get the head around something being a a supplement that is an effective stimulant, they'll just ban it. So if if it's not banned already, it doesn't work. And if it does work, the chances are, with the exception of caffeine, it's probably
0: banned. Yeah. So avoid it. I mean, this is the thing you do see some of the, uh, the like purple pre-workout drinks that people not, not in our environment, obviously, because we're um, so heavily tested and you do have to wonder what's in them. And I think the reality is it's largely caffeine, as you said. So, um, as we move to kind of cover some of the, the stuff that you've done and the podcast listenership will have a huge interest in your, in your kind of involvement with English rugby. Um, I, really briefly, can you just give a kind of a synopsis of what that that role entails?
1: Yeah, so I got involved with England rugby when I left Munster um, just before the 2015 World Cup. So I'm fortunate that I've worked with them with so far for two World Cup campaigns, and um, hopefully uh, into a third World Cup campaign. Yeah. <laughs> you never know in this world, dear. But yeah, it's been a job that I've I've loved. Um, they are an incredible set of lads. Now that is a consultancy uh, basis. It's not a full time role. when we're in camp, I'll come into camp for a few days, and in advance of the camp, I'll be working with our chef, writing the menus, periodizing the menus for the demands of the week, and then away from camp, working with individual players. You know whether it's visiting them at the club or you know phone consultations and helping them in conjunction with the club nutritionists. And the fortunate thing is now that a lot of the club nutritionists are my former students, so it's a really easy um, relationship. And then, yeah, when we're in camp, getting into camp, and you know, helping out on a on a day to day basis, it's been as a former rugby league player, but you know, rugby player, there's probably no better sport nutrition job in the world for me than this one.
0: Absolutely, and, I, and I'm glad you touched on your, your background in rugby, like a decorated, um, high-level player. I mean, one of the things we, we discussed uh, off-air was I was really interested to hear about the contrast of, you know, whenever you were knocking about, whacking people's heads off versus now what you're trying to implement, you know, that difference of, of that that time. Um, how different does performance nutrition look? Uh,
1: it's incomprehensible to compare the two. And, and I was thinking of two specific examples that might that the listeners might find quite interesting slash shocking. So I, I remember being a, a, a 17, 18-year-old player playing for Warrington. And on the Friday night, we played Hull away for the, the reserve team. So, you know, 8 p.m. kickoff, finish at 10. Bum back, no nutrition provided after the game, drive home, get to bed, And then at 10 a.m. the day after, I'm playing for the under-19s. And because I want to lie in bed, I've not even had any breakfast. So I finished it as a 17-year-old, 18-year-old, an 80-minute game against men. Um, Done a two-hour drive home, quick sleep, and then you do 80 minutes playing for the (laughs) under-19s with no nutrition, and then you eat after it. And and you wonder what was going on. And in that era, we didn't even get fed after training. Uh, Once a month, we had what was called hot pot night. And hot pot night we all got excited about it because after training we got a hot pot. So <laughs> like you know, Irish or whatever you want to call it. And it was the awards night where you got player of the month, try of the month, yeah. you know, idiot of the month. Thought it was called something different. But yeah. that was the only time when we got um when we when we actually got fed. And the amount of times as a young player driving home, we'd get used to get paid in cash in them days. So, you get your little brown, all taxable, by the way, but you got your brown envelope. Of course. And um, call at McDonald's on the way home and, nah. and you'd have a McDonald's after training. And we weren't given any education whatsoever. All I knew was this rumor going around that pasta was good for you before, uh, before a game. And I remember telling <laughs> the grand, bless her, she obviously died many years ago at my age, but I remember saying to the grand, I was staying, having dinner at her house the night before a game. and. I said, I need some pasta, Gran. So something like, you know, some curbs. Sorry, I need to, like some pasta or some beans or some rice. And she got confused. And my dinner that night was pasta, beans and rice. <laughs> she just thought I needed all three of them. It was probably the most curbs up I've ever been. I was going
0: to say. Be the,
1: the best dinner I've ever eaten, but bless her, she tried. But yeah, it, it was genuinely at that level. And now I look at the support that the modern athletes being given which, which thankfully is a, a million miles different.
0: Yeah, it just sounds like night and day, and I'm, I'm not surprised because of the amount uh, of knowledge that we have based on how important it is and the impact it can have. And um, one of the other things I was kind of keen to touch on is like the obviously a lot of what we talked about is uh, is kind of trying to suggest good decisions, making good decisions based on food. And um, one of the things that you have to factor into people's lives are the fact that they 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 want to have some social life and they want to be involved in um, going for dinner and having a glass of red wine or going for a pint with their mm. mates. So as someone who works in the elitest of all um, the rugby union w- worlds, what, what sort of advice do you give to the guys on that? And also in tandem, how does it actually affect their performance?
1: Yeah, well, I, I say to my lot quite often, but probably with the exception of doner Kebab meat and chips, Give me a food that you want to eat, and I'll get it into your diet at the right time of the week that will maximise your performance. Yeah. So what I don't want to do is make anything taboo. And I want to give the players an eating strategy that we can follow for the rest of their life. So if I've got a player who likes going to my favourite coffee shop and having a grande latte with a chocolate muffin, well, then great, we'll find a day to do it, which is probably the day before a game. When we're in that carbon load up phase, you know, the same like if, if someone loves an Italian meal, like, well, then fine, we'll, you know, high carbohydrate one, we'll get that in on the right day. Um, i got, a, I put something together years ago that I still use today, which is a guide to making bad choices better. So <laughs> if someone goes to the Indian, I can give them ideas what will, you know, what they can eat there that will be a good choice for them based on where they are in, in the current week. And, and I find by, making nothing to do, but putting it in at the right time of the week, then it's not a problem. And we've got to remember that, you know, we're not going to get in political here, but this government's probably taking out most pleasures in our life, and food is one of them. Mm-hmm. So I want people to enjoy the pleasure of eating, and I, and I don't want them to see me as a food police, but more of a food advisor. And I genuinely think that with the right education, we can make food fun. We don't need to be just eating boiled fish and sweet potato and broccoli every meal of the day. Yeah. It, it can be it can be exciting and innovative and tasty, and you can put your treat foods in and we can look forward to mealtimes and it just takes that little bit of thought.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. And I think um you know, we, we when you discuss some of the some of the issues or challenges that you might face. Do you ever think about, you know, when people have so much on the line and there's obviously like this huge focus on people in high performance and within professional sport, when it means so much to them, do you ever have concerns about how, um, I'm not sure what the right term is, probably like focused or over the top people can get with their food? Yeah,
1: Yeah, without doubt. You know, food is mood for a start off. You know, you, you only need to think about if, um, you know, where did I take my now wife on our first date? We went to a restaurant. You know, you want to put somebody in a good mood, take them for a feed, don't you? <laughs> so, you know, you, you, you've got to remember that, you know, one, food is pleasurable, but two, I, there's enough, particularly young athletes, there's enough stresses in life around food and body consciousness and things like that. But I don't want to push them down. That route. I just want to make sure that we've got enough information to help them make better choices, but I don't want them over stressing it and and, and over thinking about it. As I keep saying, it should be uh, a right enjoyable experience, and you know, and that's a. I'm not mentioned the big boss yet, you know, um, and and I don't want to mention too much. Got up again trouble, but that's yeah, one yeah. great thing of working with with Eddie. You know that he understands that, and you know, at the right time. We'll have like a street food night where it's you know we've got a great chef who we can put street food on with like chicken wings and sliders and mm-hmm. and it's just a fun dining experience and you know it's not always what you might think it is. We, we do make sure that the players walk into the train. You want to see you know how hard you guys. I don't need to tell you how hard you train. <laughs> train the house down and you look forward to the food that's coming at the end. Yeah, uh, and you know. I think that's part of my job that when they walk in that dining hall, maybe not every time, but most of the time there's a smile on the face. Absolutely. And, um, hopefully with the odd mistake that I've made that's popped up in a few uh, of the lads' recent autobiographies, I think most <laughs> of the time we get that right.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. It, it sounds like um, the, the balance is really there. I think, one of the areas of high performance that we've touched on quite a bit on the podcast is, is injuries and setbacks. And I think um, at the expense of running um, any further on, I think it's an important topic to cover because you're going to have to adjust. My perception is you're going to have to adjust what these guys are putting in their bodies, you know, maybe a post-surgery or after a long, during a long-term injury. Um, how, how great are those opportunities to to educate and also just try and, control people because i know myself through a bad injury period i definitely spent probably three months feeling sorry for myself and putting quite a bit of weight on until yeah. i kind of realized i'm what am i doing with myself here so when you have control of those guys um what sort of advice are you giving them
1: yeah so i mean, think it's, it's a great point to connect with an athlete when they're injured because the des you know it's like when you're injured you're desperate to do anything that will help. Mm. So. We've found that sometimes it's a it's a time where you can get an athlete who's maybe not committed to nutrition yet to actually change the mentality and mm-hmm. commit to it. So I think you know it's a time when we've got to work closely with the athlete. And when I said earlier about understanding the individual, well, then this is never more so the case. So we've done some studies on Liverpool um, football players, actually, where we've measured the energy expenditure of players who've got a ruptured ACL. And in some situations, where energy expenditure doesn't drop because of the rehabilitation that they're doing and everything like that. And and actually, in that situation, it's really crucial that we feed them well enough to allow healing to take place. You know, I I recently did a consultation with a rugby league player who had a bone injury. And in my opinion, it it didn't heal. Sorry, not my opinion. First time around, it didn't heal as well as they would have liked it to have done. And in my opinion, the reason being was cutting the calories too much at that point, at a point when actually we want to fuel that recovery. But there may be other situations where energy expenditure is massively down and we put all the food in we need to facilitate recovery, but we do need to pull back the calories a little bit. Absolutely. I think this is one of the many examples where we can't give a generic opinion. Mm -hmm. It's got to be working with that individual, that specific injury. Putting the right foods in that will facilitate recovery and then matching the expenditure and the intake. But if I urge on the side of caution, I would much prefer a player to put a kilo of body fat on than be underfueled and risk none,
0: uh, or an, an impaired healing of that injury. Absolutely, absolutely. So so interesting because it's an area of you know sometimes you can feel forgotten when you're when you're that injured player, and I think yeah. uh, it actually is a fantastic opportunity when when you get your head out. <laughs> out your ass like i did after three months so um when we look to uh kind of round this off grim um been a really interesting conversation around how our, what we put in our body affects our high performance w- what are some of the major develops developments in sports nutrition um that you'd like to see over the next kind of five to ten years and i know i appreciate it's a, it's a broad question but in terms of what you what your kind of fut- what the future looks like how would you like it to look
1: I think I'd like to stop the fad diets that pop up all the time is the first one and people always looking for the next big thing. And, you know, the amount of times I've worked in an organization where people are looking for the the 1% without the 99% is fixed. Mm. Um, I mean, I'd like to stop being asked the question, is this food good for me or is this food bad for me? Um, it, it, it's all context dependent isn't it you know but yeah a, a big bag of rice will be an amazing food on one day and not so good on the next and yeah so i think i'd like people to calm down a little when it comes to food and actually uh get back to enjoying it and um you know I, i've said a lot that if people cooked meals from scratch so if, if at breakfast we cooked you know, some, where we had some overnight oats or whatever. If at lunch it was fish, rice, vegetables, dinner, again, some chicken, vegetables, potato, whatever. Most people would be pretty spot on. The issue we get is when the snacks, when we start listening to like little demons in our head saying we're hungry when we're probably not and we run out for the convenience foods. So I think the biggest thing I would like is to get back to basics, we should be teaching kids in schools how to put together food and how to make them. We need to get home economics back into the school system and get get kids excited about healthy food again and, and, and less um, less packet stuff mm-hmm. and, and really begin to value and appreciate where food where good food comes from and how, how to make it. Absolutely.
0: And I suppose in the last kind of question and that it, it, it ties in with that, like where would you like to see Nutrition X be in five to 10 years with your association with them? Um, one, How to supplement people's really good first diets?
1: Yeah. So one thing that I'm trying to do with Nutrition X, and we've done a few things, if you go onto like the website, and I'm going to tell you to go to two pages on the website, that have nothing to do with supplements and um, <laughs> maybe the brand will hate me for that, but there you go. I started on the website. We've got the nutrition hub, and the yeah. nutrition hub. I've just got it in front of me now, just seeing the first article uh, that is on the is a vitamin C rich breakfast idea. So just showing how to get lots of vitamin C into your breakfast. And it, if you look at that picture, I want to go out and cook that now. Um, and then there's there's an athlete's guide to vitamin C on there There is um, a healthy eating mess recipe on the. We've got you know loads of recipe ideas and then the second thing on the website is what i've called the nutrition exchange which is a series of articles written by world leaders trying Mm. to explain um the the science better so this month's one is written by nancy guest on vegan diets um there's one on ramadan and sports performance Wow. Periodizing carbohydrates, obviously. What well, on vitamin D? I had to start with vitamin D, didn't I? <laughs> but we're, we're uh, I'm really proud of Nutrition X. Is we're trying to be a place where athletes can look to to get quality information wider than what supplement do people need to take. So that is my vision for the brand. but if anyone's confused when it comes to nutrition, they can jump on the Nutrition X website and gain unbiased opinion written by world leaders. That is free to access. Yep. You know, you don't need any textbook. By the time this nutrition exchanges where I, I want it to be the information written by world leaders is the free to download and read.
0: Amazing. Amazing. I think it's a, it's an amazing platform. Um, as I mentioned before, nutrition X are generously going to be doing a, a bundle giveaway in, in association with some of the stuff that we've discussed. Um, I just like to take a quick second to say a huge, thank you for your time. I, I'm a massively busy man. Uh, you kind of jumping all over the place, loads and loads to do. And I just want to appreciate taking an hour of your time to, to have a really important conversation. I think I mentioned to you before we, we did this, I think, the aim for for both of us, if if you're in agreement, is that people will listen to this not just once, maybe dip back into it twice or three times, and find it as a useful tool. Um, in terms of tying together how high performance is so closely related to what you put in your body and, and how you go about thinking about what goes into your body. So, um, huge amount of experience and expertise there, and I just love to say a great big thank you, Graham. Thank you.
1: No problem at all. And and if anyone has got any questions based on the back of here, they can always reach out to me on social media, whether it's Twitter, which is close underscore nutrition, or Instagram, which is close nutrition. And, and if there really is enough interest and you get a load of questions emailed to you, now yeah. then maybe one day we can just jump on and answer them questions in a quick quick fire Q&A and you can put that one out at some point. But I'm, as you have probably heard today, I'm passionate about particularly young people getting access to quality nutrition information and knowing all the benefits that you can get from maximizing your diet.
0: Brilliant. Thank you very much, Grim. I appreciate your time. Anytime. it been great to speak.